Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And today we're going to discuss the season four premiere, The American Alien. Which was fantastic. It was. The season premiere was super (laughs) interesting and has set up a lot of very cool themes and things we're going to see. And you were really excited by the intro scene, which was really cute and kind of a return to form for the show. Hmm, That's true. Because they've been talking about how we're going to see more of, like, the people of not just National City, it seems, but all of Earth. We see Kara flying around in different countries. She was in Spain. And then a fictional place from the DC comic verse, but it's somewhere in Russia or a former Soviet country. Mm-hmm. And then in America, of course. Well, she started in Metropolis. Yeah, she started in Metropolis because we got that scene of the Daily Planet newspaper, which you noticed Lois Lane had written that article about Supergirl. Yes, and I made the joke that it was really sweet that Clark was on his birthright trip to Argo. <laughs> yes. I love that. I really enjoyed that scene because of what Melissa had pointed out during Comic-Con, which we mentioned in our SDCC episode of the podcast. She said that Supergirl doesn't represent truth, justice in the American way. She represents hope, help, and compassion for all. And, you know, saying that this motto is all-inclusive and reaching out a helping hand to someone and not enforcing an ideal to someone. And I felt like that scene of her being a hero for all of the people was emblematic of that idea. And Jean later on in the episode said a line that kind of reinforced that idea, which was, you're a beacon of hope who sets an example fighting for justice everywhere. So not truth, justice in the American way, but justice for all, essentially. Well, and the other thing that was really cool about that opening sequence was that it was nice to see Kara really back to herself after that year that she had of really kind of processing a lot of her grief and guilt that she felt over different things and coming to terms and coming to peace with all of that and settling into herself both as Supergirl, but then also professionally. Like, this was our first real scene of seeing her at work as a journalist in quite a while. So that was fun to to see and to set the tone for where things are going. And it, it was a lot of fun. And, and sort of when you pitch the idea of Supergirl, this is kind of the fun and game section that you would imagine of it, where she's kind of helping people and um, performing great feats and connecting to people while also being a journalist and succeeding in that way. So Yeah, the tone was a lot like those early episodes in season one when she was first doing it. So it's kind of like how Colville pointed out in season three that Kara had lost her passion for what she was doing. And here we see her in season four and it's back. Mm. But of course, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> she can't be happy for too long. Um, it's interesting because this episode, that like elated, very happy, very confident feeling that she has becomes a roadblock of sorts. And this is sort of the first hint of the hope versus fear theme that we're going to be delving into all season. The hope versus fear was something that the showrunners put out very early during, I think during SDCC, mm-hmm. as the overarching theme of the season and how it's going to be a conflict that all of the characters will grapple with in different ways to some extent. Yeah. And we sort of see that Kara, who tends to be this kind of representation of hope for people, is the one grappling with her own fear. And what I found to be interesting about that was how Kara tends to be a very optimistic person. And usually it's an asset to her in the ways that they set it up in the storyline. She tends to be a beacon of hope who helps those around her to face their problems, to see other points of view or to empathize with people. But her like hope and optimism kind of fused together with her fear in this episode and twisted it so that she wasn't seeing the reality of the situation. What I liked about that from sort of a writing standpoint is how a tra- we very closely associate with Kara and, and sort of what a role model she is, is that optimism. And then they sort of flip it on its head in this scenario, which is something I'm interested in as far as character traits. I love when writers explore how the same character trait can be a negative thing or a positive thing, depending on the situation and depending on like sort of how extreme it is. And with Kara, obviously she has this, this optimism all the time, but it was also heightened at this time because of other things that were happening with her character. And she had that fear of going back to that place that she was in season three and that fear of going back to that dark place that she was in earlier points in her life in general and dealing with feeling like an alien as she was a kid Mm. growing up on Earth. 
So Kara says, the thought of so much anger out there, it's not what I wanted to believe was true. Uh, and I thought it was a really interesting phrasing because James in season one had said after Kara had been infected with red kryptonite and lashed out in several different ways, James had said, I mean, just to know that you have that sort of anger inside of you. And they're both talking about the shock that there's this anger. And I thought this was interesting because of how we framed that situation with James when we discussed faith. Mm. Because that was a moment of disillusionment for James with Kara as like a superhero, as a super. And in this scenario, Kara, who has this massive faith in people, is being disillusioned in that same way with that same phrasing. I thought that was neat. Mm, True. And what I thought was interesting about this situation with Kara not believing Jean when he says that, you know, something's a hate crime and that there's a rising anti-alien sentiment was how, and this optimism I find interesting from the outside looking in, you know, comparing our situation here in whatever Earth this is. to this Earth 38 America where President Marsden is president. For now. For now. And we've seen like bits and pieces that kind of connect our world to theirs where they're having the same sorts of issues, but it doesn't seem like it's as intense as it is in our world. Well, it goes back and forth on that because if you'll recall, season one started out with some pretty strong anti-alien sentiment that was being supported by factions in the U.S. Congress in in the world of, of the show. Mm-hmm. And Kara's presence, a Supergirl kind of elevated the perception of aliens to some extent, almost in a different way than Superman, because you you know you of course always have had Lois Lane like writing pieces about Superman and he's covered in the media, but you also have to remember that Cat is like a level or two even beyond that. She's the owner of an entire media empire, like multi-platform, and has more eyeballs seeing the things that she produces and the content that she spreads. And so the the media element in season one was as much responsible for changing that sentiment as Kara herself mm. in some respects. And you even had her acknowledge that to Kat to some extent in Human for a Day. So it's really cool that we're seeing newspaper, you know, we saw a newsprint right off the bat this season. We're seeing Kara interviewing people. We're seeing her mentor, a new journalist, and really starting to grapple with this question of how, does, how do you talk about this this language of hate and how do you understand it without condoning it and explain to people why it's dangerous and try to change their minds because all media, that's its goal, is to make you believe something hmm. in much the same way like the cult did last year. So Yeah. But I just think that like I can't imagine that Kara is reading the same sort of stuff that we read every day. So I think because we're seeing this expansion in season four of the world of the show to covering the whole world, I think they're trying to fold in that these problems have been here all along, much the same way that the problems in our world had actually been here for decades and nobody Mm -hmm. noticed it until it hit a tipping point. So I think you're seeing a replication of we've hit that tipping point. Yeah. And they kind of explicitly say that within the show. That said, we did have little hints that this was coming in season three because in the little snippet cameo of Kat that we got at the start of last season, she specifically mentions a Speaker of the House, which means the dominant party in Congress, who was a very Trump-like figure Mm -hmm. standing in opposition and having a lot of those those points of view. And so they were starting to build in the idea that you had, kind of like in the, the second half of the Obama administration, that you had this very liberal leadership in the executive branch, but that there was a backlash against it. And you started seeing in the legislative branch, people voting the opposite direction and swinging more conservative. Yeah. So I think we're seeing that come to fruition now, especially when you consider, you know, there's been like an alien invasion every year. (laughs) Yeah. What I'm saying is that I feel like this is us a few years ago. Oh, you mean like with the the political atmosphere in in the States? Yeah. And that it's going to progress very similarly and kind of mirror that real world situation. And I feel like Kara was a lot of people like five years ago in that mindset. Oh, you mean in the sense of not wanting to either not recognizing or not wanting to recognize that it has become as large of a problem as it has? Right. Well, sort of when it's still at the point where you can ignore it. Mm. And then I think a lot of people became disillusioned in in the same way that we saw Kara be. 
Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool to see a very optimistic person look at a situation that we're feeling and be like, this is not okay. Mm. And it kind of sets up the progression that we're going to see throughout the season. The decision on the part of the show to kind of touch base with reality and to mirror that reality in some respects in an attempt to depict how you grapple with it was actually really exciting for me personally because some of this is stuff that I research and have been researching for several years specifically related to social media disinformation campaigns hate groups on the internet and then politics in general so I had a good time with this episode (laughs) and I'm gonna have to restrain myself from not going into like total lecture mode right now and giving you a very elaborate history of how all of this stuff has unfolded in the past five years in real life. <laughs> so you had singled out specifically the the shock reaction that, that Kara has as Supergirl when she gets to the warehouse and just sees the bank of computers that are all monitoring all these different sites around the dark web. Mm-hmm. Although honestly, you could find a lot of that stuff in our situation without having to go to the dark web. Yeah, you don't have to go all that way. You honestly really just have to type into Google a few things and you'll be there. <laughs> and it's really the tipping point in the episode where Kara has to confront her own bias and recognize that there are things that have been happening that she hasn't seen mm-hmm. or heard because of who she surrounds herself with and the places that she goes and the the way that she exists in the world as both a superhero and just as herself as an alien who looks very human mm-hmm. all of the time. So how does this connect to reality? Kara's natural reaction of not wanting to believe that the attack on the bar and the attack on the scientists were related is totally logical and it's something that has been happening all over the United States, all over most countries in the world that are experiencing this kind of conservative swing right now. Um, so the way that that's manifested in, in reality is you've had a large – by and large, the whole population has been completely unaware of the extent to which people in very high-level positions of political power, they could be independent actors or state actors as we've seen with um, the Russia involvement, which that was a nice tie-in. There were actually a couple of ways that the show made very subtle political references to – issues with Russia throughout U.S. history. So that was clever. But essentially what happened was you had all these people who spent years psychologically profiling everyday citizens, learning what makes them tick. And then when you had the advance of social media, it became much, much easier to get really, really specific detail, not about people in general, but about specific individuals. And then you could break them into tiny, tiny buckets that could be as small as maybe two or three people. And you could learn all of their psychological vulnerabilities. And then if you were an unscrupulous person, you can learn how to manipulate those vulnerabilities to your advantage. And you could do all of this without the average person even knowing it's happening because most people don't understand how algorithms work. They don't know what the back end of a website looks like, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of like obviously Cara is familiar with lots of quite advanced technology, but her moment of seeing those computers there was – I noticed like a network map of showing interconnections of different groups and different things like that. Mm. There was a list of forum posts that showed URLs from all around the world, not just the United States. It intentionally included ones that specified other countries. Mm-hmm. It was showing the spread of different propaganda articles. It was showing all these different message boards and seeing the ways people were reacting and spreading both disinformation and hateful attitudes out into the general public. And because it all happens online, because it tends to happen like from the privacy of your phone or your house, it it goes unseen. And that's really that's really kind of what Jean is, was trying to tell Kara that he's been with people who've been on the receiving end of this attitude and he he knows it's there even if he's not totally sure of where it's coming from. But she hasn't seen it because she hasn't tried to see it. And this is actually an issue that has come up with real journalists and there's an article that we'll link on our Tumblr talking about how should the media cover this kind of extremism. And one of the problems was that a lot of journalists – specifically didn't have any training or knowledge of how to 
to go online and essentially do participant observation or do a long ethnographic study of an online group or understand online culture and learn how to interpret it and figure out how that crosses over into real life behavior. Mm-hmm. And so the sh- I appreciate immensely that the show is trying to tackle that because it is a huge problem and it is one that isn't going to get better unless you do have more socially responsible media campaigns through pop culture that educate people on all of these these vulnerabilities and these problems with not just social media but like personalized news and other things that can very quickly and very, very extremely skew your perspective of what the world is like and what's happening and how other people are treating you. Mm-hmm. And Cara being a journalist this season and them to tackling all these things opens a lot of avenues for this kind of commentary. Mm-hmm. So that'll be really interesting to see what else they do. I'm so ready. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> really? Could you? Are you sure? <laughs> I, you're pulling up your articles right now. I, I'm not joking. There, I have an entire reading list that I will share. Spread the knowledge. Yes, we too are going to spread information (laughs) to combat disinformation. So to swing all of that back around to what the show is doing, one of the reasons Kara was really struggling to wrap her brain around how the everyday attack at the bar was connected to this really high profile Cadmus infiltration of a lab was that the the profiles of the two criminals didn't seem like they matched. Mm-hmm. You know, they looked like there was no reason that they should relate to each other. But what ends up relating these people is their ideology. And then you find out that Mercy and Otis Graves have set up later in the episode the entire Camp David confrontation, not to cause damage, but specifically to expose President Marzin because they are aware of the rumors that she's an alien. Um, and the other cool thing about that was you saw a parallel to that kind of bait and switch manipulation in um, how Lena played Lillian and then went to the DA to swap out James's charges mm-hmm. for the ones for the Elcorp contact. And what's interesting about both of those things is they're both political moves. Mm-hmm. And it really emphasizes that the battles that our heroes are going to be fighting are in that sphere. Well, and it also touches on the influence of personal relationships and personal connections in impacting politics, whether that seems like it's ethical or not. Mm, also true. Like in the case of Lena going directly to the DA and being like, here, I'll give you this information if you drop all the charges against my boyfriend. <laughs> Although I have been told by actual lawyers that it's not actually that odd that the DA was willing to do that because James didn't actually do anything wrong in like a real criminal sense Mm -hmm. and it would have been a pretty weak case to try to convict him especially in front of a jury of people who are like but guardian saves everyone (laughs) so for them since they like to play to win it's a much better deal to take the evidence on the guy who's committed lots of crimes who they've been trying to pin down for years than to go after somebody who actually has been like helping reduce crime (laughs) Yeah. But it was interesting in how it kind of set Lena up to be in this very interesting kind of gray area where she's taking advantage of her elevated position in society to do good, but to do it in possibly questionable ways. <laughs> yeah. As is, as is Lena's signature way. for Lena. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of methods, Jean spent the episode trying to steer Kara in the direction of the truth, but also reemphasizing the fact that he's no longer a manhunter. He's trying to be a catalyst for peace and to fight battles in a different kind of way. That's sort of demonstrated visually in a nice way when we see him wearing the robes. When Kara burst in and tried to get him to fight along with her, and he's standing there in sort of very visual representation of, this is not who I am anymore. Um, And you had a really interesting way of framing that, um, which was up against Agent Liberty. Oh, yes. So in the middle of the episode, Agent Liberty, when he's talking to um, Mercy and Otis, he says, let he who desires peace prepare for war, which is the English translation of this very old Latin quote, civis pacem parabellum. And it's from a Roman military text, so it's really old, but it's been rephrased and recycled many, many times throughout history. And essentially, the point of it 
it is you always need to be preparing for the next battle, especially during peacetime, because if you don't, that's when you let your guard down and the enemy might overtake you. And this was also where there was another very subtle Russia political reference snuck in mm-hmm. because this phrase was inserted deliberately into the public consciousness in the United States by conservatives during the Cold War. And then it came up again specifically among Reagan and his colleagues during the 80s, suggesting that Jimmy Carter was not a sufficiently strong president in the face of threats from Russia and other countries in the Soviet bloc. Mm. So this attitude of be ready and prepared for war, even when it's peaceful and kind of always be militarizing yourself, stands in direct contrast to Jean's philosophy, which he got from his father, the live as Franmir taught and promote peace. And then he says to Kara, I cannot do that while holding a sword. Mm. So it's, it's kind of the exact opposite. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing about that is you have Alex sitting right in the middle between those two philosophies because you have this quick exchange between her and Kara during the scene at Camp David where Kara thanks Alex for being there and she says, I know you have to pick your battles now. And it's a nod to the fact that Alex's position has been elevated as the director, that she's not always in the field. And Alex says, well, this seemed like a good battle to pick. Mm-hmm. So both Alex and Jean have have these shifted roles, and we got to see the first sort of glimpse of what Jean's new life is as a person of National City as part of the sort of the culture and reintegrating himself with the people within the alien bar. Um, and they had a nice little therapy circle, which they did. I was oh my so God. excited <laughs> to see that. It's like God knows these characters need therapy. Of course, yeah. none of the ones that really need it were there, but baby steps, making progress. <laughs> yeah. Listen, it's an open door. Like, I mean, the main therapist kind of died, but... At least we think. I'm a little afraid that they're going to, like, metallo her. Oh, that would be really, really terrible. It would. It'd be super messed up. And I think you said... Somebody said she's an actor on another show, so it's probably not the case, but... Well, she's in The Good Place. I don't know if if she's been in this current season, though, so maybe. Well, I mean, there have been some uh, veiled Frankenstein references, so... It's true. You never know. We could we could get some more uh, weird bioengineered people. I would not be surprised. But that was sort of a, a nice glimpse into how Jean is trying to create peace and, and really help people in a less violent fashion with all the, the aliens within the therapy circle who are all dealing with marginalization and, and their struggles having to do with their role in society. Mm-hmm. And so we saw the two aliens who were arguing. They were disagreeing strongly. <laughs> Over whether or not the one alien should use the personal image inducer to blend in with the humans. And the alien who was using it had a very obviously alien face versus the person who had sort of more subtle but not exactly hidden features. You could tell that he was an alien, but... But if you happen to see him at like from a quick glance like down the street, you wouldn't necessarily know. So one of the other themes that they're setting up for this season, which may not be as prominent, but it's definitely there, is this issue of what it means to pass or not pass. We saw them set up for this last season in terms of, you know, passing as human or not human with regard to aliens. But I think we're also going to see them deal with it in a number of other contexts as well, because we had James talking more about racism at the end of last season. So we might see something, some things to do with color, ethnic identity, and how do you represent your, your ethnicity authentically? performative gender norms will probably come up with a couple of the characters and you see that conflict a lot in that kind of therapy scene in the bar between the aliens of different levels who who look different levels of different and who experience the world differently because of it and that comes to a head in the conflict between Kara and Jean throughout the episode especially later on. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting in that scene, I thought, was the therapist's line that she said, we each do the best we can in our own way. And that ties in not only with the question of passing, you know, what sort of ways you, you try to push forward. No, yeah, I see what you mean. It, it can also apply to, for example, like 
closeted LGBT people. Mm -hmm. It can apply to people with disabilities of varying degrees or varying kinds. It can apply to people with mental health problems just in general. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of contexts in which saying, you know, we do the best we can is a really useful thing to hear. And, you know, it's important to try to do the best you can, even if you know it's not the same as somebody else's best. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ties into what Jean is saying about the way in which he wants to help people and, and resist, which is a more peaceful technique. Yeah, so Jean's kind of newfound pacifism and embracing of this, the Martian identity and the things he's learned from his father is very much at odds with Kara and Kara's natural inclination, which is to face problems head on in a more directly confrontational way. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing there is that the two of them have always had this dynamic where they can be a little bit philosophically at odds with each other. But it also leads to room for a lot of growth on both sides when they finally do start to see eye to eye and work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me in some ways very much of their dynamic in the early episodes of season one where they are really off balance with each other and Kara kind of awkwardly tries to be friendly and, and Jean doesn't reciprocate. And she's like, well, we'll – We'll find our thing and looks helplessly at Alex. (laughs) And then you had brought up Mm -hmm. an interesting point a while ago, which I think is relevant to this conflict that they're having now, but also to kind of some of the other ones they've had in the past, which is that since Kara is immune to Jean's telepathy, how does that affect his ability to reach her emotionally? in the same way that he does maybe with Alex, for example. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of it depends on how much John uses this ability. Yeah. But certainly early on, before he revealed himself to be a, a Martian, he probably relied on it significantly. And in Midvale, when he and Kara in the flashback, when he had shapeshifted to look like her mother, but was pretending to be like an FBI FBI agent. He sort of tried to use her parents and what they would theoretically want for her to convince her to lay low as Cara Danvers. But she said, um, you have no idea who my parents were. Like, you don't know that. And, you know, that was directly conflicting with how she saw what her parents would want. So that I think the fact that he couldn't in that moment read her mind and sort of see how she might react to this sort of thing and and kind of connect to her on that level put him at more of a disadvantage than he would have expected to be because he seemed really thrown back by that when she said it. Yeah. Well, I don't know even necessarily that it's like he wants to probe deeply into her thoughts, but he can't even get a deeper sense of her emotional state in the same way that he can with other people. Yeah. Which I think makes her, for him, harder to predict. And he's used to connecting with people emotionally. Mm -hmm. Like he knows a lot about her. He knew that her wanting to see the best in people was a roadblock in this scenario, but he didn't catch on to the fear. Yeah, he couldn't figure out the best way to reach her about it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Alex, conversely, was able to kind of read that in Kara. Yes, which was a really cool and interesting scene in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So we had a really great Danvers sisters scene to kind of take a break in the middle of the episode. Which somebody pointed out to us earlier today might be the first season premiere where Alex and Cara haven't gotten into a fight with each other in all four seasons (laughs) of the show. Um, And they were very much supportive of each other's issues in the scene. But it was really funny because I said in the the last podcast episode that one of my favorite Damned Sisters moments in the whole show involved them kind of comforting each other with food. And then you saw that in this particular scene. So I was like, oh, someone understands my very specific wants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you literally were like, I'm looking forward to seeing how this happens in season four. Oh, right. I did say and that. And then immediately in the premiere. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, so they had this this scene where they're both clearly stressed about different things and they recognize it in each other and kind of try to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you made an interesting point in um, saying that the advice that Alex gives to Kara is actually very similar to advice that Kat had given to Kara previously. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because that's not the only sort of Kat connection we have in the episode. But Alex says, even if it's hard, if you face it, you can conquer anything, um, referring to the rising anti-alien sentiment, which I always think it's funny. I thought it was really funny in this episode how people are like, Cara, you'll figure it out. 
You'll fix this. Kara personally is going to solve the <laughs> historical problem of xenophobia in America that has been there for 250 years. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just like, no wonder she's stressed out. Like, right? I would be too. Like, those are, that's a weighty expectation. Mm-hmm. And she's so resistant to it because like, she already knows that it's totally her problem that she's going to have to work to fix. But so Alex said that, you know, even though it's difficult, she'll be able to face it. You'll figure it out. Yeah. And she emphasized her like faith in her in that way. Um, and that reminded me of the scene with that car had with Kat at the end of falling where Kat said that, you know, it wasn't going to be easy for her to win back the public in sort of a very similar situation, but mm-hmm. a grander scale this time uh, that she doesn't believe in failure. Not if you get it back up and face the music and it takes time. But if anybody can win the city back, it's you. And both of these things sort of emphasize that, you know, car, you have to really address the problem And they both emphasized that they had faith that Kara would be able to do it, that she would be able to win back the city in one way or another. (laughs) And that was in season one. And this episode felt like season one in a couple ways, um, especially concerning like Kara kind of learning lessons from the people around her and letting them guide her in different ways, which I always love to see. But also because Kara had a a certain way of looking at the world at the beginning of the episode, which was um, causing problems that later on, because of the series of events that happened in the episode, her mindset shifted, which happened a lot in season one, where she would learn a lesson um, during the course of one episode, which I I missed in season two when that stopped happening. Mm. Initially in season one, I was kind of irritated with it. Yeah, it got a little heavy handed at times. Uh Uh-huh. I generally liken it to the sledgehammer approach. (laughs) It's true. Of messaging. I don't like it all the time, but I do enjoy it sometimes. And contrastingly to season one, I felt like this was more like a mature way of doing that. Mature handling of it. Yeah. And it's nice to see once in a while because sometimes you need that more immediate learning curve for the audience as well to cue you into like, oh, this is the way that we should be viewing this problem. Mm -hmm. And it sort of set up the season so that she would. Yes. And it's especially useful that we had that in this episode of of Kara recognizing these things and learning on her own and working on improvement because now Kara is in the position to be advising someone else. Mm -hmm. Kara became a mentor for the brand new character Nianal, played by Nicole Maines, who we've all been waiting for her debut. And I have said I'm going to get so much use of that out of that image of Wonder Woman going a baby (laughs) this season because yes, she is a child. I mean, she's not, but compared to everyone else in the show, she is. (laughs) She was what probably 20 when she was filming this first episode, so she's 21 now. Yes, she is the same age as my small person. So in my brain, she's a baby. Ah, uh, and and it was interesting because we had that Alex and Cat parallel, and then Kara sort of emulated the more positive aspects of Cat as a mentor when she was advising Nia in her little arc, Nia's fear-based arc, in dealing with just kind of having the courage to voice herself. The other part that was really funny and kind of almost a validation of how impactful Kara was as an assistant is the fact that she meets Nia without really knowing at first who it is and immediately feels a kinship and is like, oh my god, you're me. <laughs> and it was really funny because it also, in a, in a way, is developing Kat's character even though she's off screen because you see that Kat valued those qualities about Kara that she used to pick on about, you know, how she was very optimistic and wanted to help people and was very kind of a bubbly personality and mm-hmm. not at all like Kat. Mm-hmm. And yet when Kat left Catco, she hired someone who also had those qualities and then sent them back to Kara. Yeah. After the fact. I, I can't imagine that pilot episode Kat would have hired her. New. No. You know, given her possible confidence issues. And I mean, she hired Kara. Well, so. and... You know, you th- even think about when Kara got promoted, Kat was iffy on Eve, who was also in some ways very <laughs> like Kara. That's true. Kat's just collecting people who have that kind of same energy at this point. True. 
So the advice that we saw Kara give Nia was very similar to the sort of advice that Kat would give in the sense that it was mostly motivational as opposed to like the ins and outs of reporting, which I know is something that some people were a bit wary of because we haven't seen Kara acquire certain reporting skills. Well, we didn't really see her engage in the process of learning because Mm -hmm. in season two, a lot of when we saw her uh, doing reporting, it was her in contention with Snapper over having to learn those skills in the first place, much like when we saw her in the Midvale flashback and she was like, why do I need to know history? <laughs> and Carter has always kind of had this this quality about her, at least in her life on Earth, of being hesitant or resistant to doing things that are not easy on the first try because so many things are. I also think a big part of it is that she's so set already in how she wants to do things. Mm-hmm. Like she's very confident in her worldview typically, although she she does listen to people a lot. She does. So she has this sort of system where she's initially very resistant, but then kind of opens up and, and really listens to the people around her. Well, in that sense, and it's it's interesting that her, her family's philosophy is stronger together because Kara embodies some of the best qualities of good leaders, which is recognizing that when you don't know everything, you need to surround yourself with other people who might and who'd be willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Sean even says something not quite like that, but to that effect in their final conversation with each other when Kara admits that she doesn't know how to face this challenge. And he says, well, that's a signal of of wisdom. Mm, That's true. And that's something I've mentioned liking about Kara is her, her openness to learn, even if there's that initial stubbornness that we see a lot. Yes. Oh, Kara. <laughs> I liked the context that they gave for for Nia, and I like that they're going to bring her whole story out gradually, and they didn't try to dump too much of it on us all at once. So it'll be really cool to see her journey unfold, and to also see all the other characters go on that journey with us as the audience and get to experience her story unfolding. And yes. I'm excited. Yeah. So speaking of workplace adjustments, we had Alex and Brainy and their interpersonal struggles at the DEO. And you had mentioned sort of the reason that that conflict on Alex's end was occurring. Which was Alex still is kind of feeling her way through what it means to be the director of the DEO now. And um, they haven't finished actually introducing all of the things that will happen for Alex's character this season because we still haven't met the other new series regular who's going to be at the DEO. There's going to be a female character who I think is going to be a military plant, right? I forget the character's name. but mm-hmm. We talked about in the Comic-Con episode. Yeah. Who is going to have an impact on Alex and what she's doing at the DEO. But at the moment, what we saw Alex doing was kind of trying, in the, in the way she always has, to do everything as right as possible. And in so doing, is kind of trying to do everything a little bit. And is, it seems... a not struggling necessarily, but the stress of it, I think, is is getting to her a little bit. But one thing we did see, which was kind of nice, was um, she is better at coping with setbacks in the sense that, like, when President Marsden showed up unexpectedly and she was caught completely unprepared, she just kind of went with it. And then after the fact, wasn't, like, critical of herself and thinking about things that she did wrong, Mm -hmm. which is very different than kind of what we saw of Alex early in season one and then some of her flashbacks. Yeah. So she's making progress, which is good. It's true. Um, However. But something that is still true of Alex, on the other hand. Yeah, she um, is continuing to kind of be a jerk to everyone around her when she's sad, (laughs) a thing that she has done a lot throughout the series. Mm -hmm. And the person she was taking this out on a little bit was Brainy. Mm -hmm. Brainy, who was having his own workplace issues as well. And it was definitely on that sort of interpersonal level with Alex and how Alex was kind of missing Win and wishing that Brainy would be him without maybe consciously knowing that that's what she was wishing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, from Brainy's point of view, he's trying to integrate himself into this century and connect to humans and, and work with how humans think, how the humans at the DEO think. Not that he's never done that before, but he's adjusting to the, the change in the time period and the culture mm-hmm. and the expectations that people have. Yeah. And, you know, we saw his relationship with Monel and Imra. He didn't necessarily not have those kind of communication problems with them, mm. although it was definitely 
definitely smoother. It's very likely present, I think, across the time. Yep. Basically, he presents like somebody who's neurodivergent. Like a couple things that I noticed during just this episode was sort of trouble estimating time. Alex told him, I've been telling you for months to warn me in advance when things are important. But never throughout the episode did she give him a specific amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. She just kind of. She just assumed he would know what that meant without giving additional direction, mm -hmm. which is something she in a leadership position should be also paying more attention to a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you could tell when Brainy later on sort of explains himself to her that he thought it was plenty of time, that she's quick on her feet. And a couple classifications of people who are neurodivergent have trouble figuring out how long things take, both in the sense of like just sort of understanding time in general, like how long things have taken, but also how much time you're going to need to fulfill a task. Um, and that combined with communication leaves a lot of room for Brainy to make mistakes in estimating how much time Alex is going to want ahead of time to prepare for any number of tasks. And Alex also said, every time I tell you to do something, you either do too little or too much, which just really speaks to Brainy not really knowing how to handle certain problems without really specific instructions. And one other moment that struck me was when Alex was like, you don't breathe unless I tell you to. And then Brainy took it literally. So all of these things sort of come together and, and form a picture where Brainy's not fitting in in ways that, you know, somebody who's neurodivergent, a neurodivergent human might not fit in in a workplace environment. And um, how if there aren't certain accommodations and communication that can lead to this sort of situation. And that kind of leads into, you know, all the other arcs that we're having that connect to different kinds of minorities and marginalized people. Mm-hmm. So then when he wasn't really getting that, not necessarily validation, but just kind of cordial, like, you're doing all right at your job connection with Alex, he seemed like he kind of turned over to Supergirl and seemed to focus his investment more in, in what she had to say. Just in a couple instances, like when Kara crash landed because of the anti-gravity cuffs and he flew out of the DEO and went to go help her. Mm -hmm. He helps her get out of the cuffs and then she just like happily smiles at him and flies away. And then he, he goes, you're welcome. <laughs> and then later on when he helps Supergirl and she says, nice one brainy he like really dramatically goes eureka and he's like super elated about it which i thought was interesting because we talked about whether or not brainy is still kind of like a fan well the way that brainy has reacted to Kara, at least that we've seen in this episode so far has been interesting because we had gotten a question last week that didn't fit in with the danver sisters episode but it was about brainy and whether or not we would see more of how he reacts to Kara, having known her as this big larger than life historical figure who inspired the values of the Legion and he is absolutely still kind of fangirling over getting to work with her a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Cyclone Rachel on Tumblr who asked the question uh, and she also wanted to know like if we might see more of that. I think so. Basically just why he admires her and just more about that. I mean I would assume so. It doesn't seem like his fanness has gone away so we'll probably see more of that aspect of it explored. Although I don't expect that he'll always see her in that same light. No, I have a feeling that eventually she and Brainy will kind of be at odds with each other in the same way, not in the same way that he is with Alex, but in, the, in that same sort of emotional way where they're just like exasperated with each other. Hmm. But probably for different reasons, because Carr was clearly very sympathetic to mm -hmm. his side of things when um, Alex was frustrated. Yeah, which I can understand why Kara might because yes. she herself <laughs> had issues with, with Alex's being frustrated. No, well, just in trying to fit in and, and function. <laughs> in this society. In, but for Kara, that is explicitly related to Alex. And when they were young and in middle school, Alex's reaction to her was like, ugh, she's annoying. Why do I have to do this? That's true. Um. Yeah. Well, I was also thinking in terms of like neurodivergence and, and how Kara had a couple of those traits when she was younger, like overstimulation, etc. But the last couple of people that we have to talk about are Lena and James and also Lillian. <laughs> As far as the fear theme goes, Lena voiced in this episode that she didn't want to lose another loved one to prison because Lillian's there, Lex is in prison. And it's gone so well for them. <laughs> 
So she sort of let fear guide her own actions in the same way that Kara let her her fear guide her actions initially. But Lena didn't have the interventions that Kara had, mostly because nobody knows what she did. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to come around to bite her at some point later in the season. None of her things will. <laughs> Just like her keeping the Harnell isn't going to become a problem leader either. <laughs> I don't anticipate anything about that being said again. <laughs> I don't anticipate anything about Lena's secret keeping being a counterpoint to any other secret keeping conflicts that may or may not come to pass. Hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of secrets, um, I thought it was interesting that Lena's currently keeping this big secret between her and James when James went through kind of great lengths last season to air everything out and kind of have their relationship be open and honest. So we'll see how that affects their relationship later on. So we saw with the playing chess and what have you, that was in some respects Lena visiting her mother, but it also had a duplicitous purpose. So another motive for being there. But one of the things that came up in the course of conversation that I don't think Lena anticipated talking about was the technology initiatives that Elcorp has been working on lately. And it was interesting that we find out that Lena was the one responsible for the image inducer, which when you and I were talking about this as we were making notes, we realized maybe the image inducer that Brainy got at the end of season three was actually made by Elcorp mm -hmm. as opposed to something he brought from the future because Wynn knew what it was as soon as he saw it. But it's interesting that that's the device that she's working on in this episode where we see people putting on these different layers of masks and deceiving each other and talking about appearances and presentation. And we see that she has chosen to create this technology related to aliens that is about cloaking and hiding. Whereas in season two, she had the very different detection device which was all about opening and sharing information in some cases whether you really want or think you should or not mm -hmm. and Lillian was kind of critical of this and questioning Lena's motives and Lena's like no it's just a business thing I'm just riding the wave here and making money off of it. But depending, because we don't know whatever became of the alien detection device, but just the, the contrast between saying that humans had the right to know who the aliens were regardless in season two to this shift in season four after she's had the experience of knowing who Monel was and knowing how much he meant to Kara and knowing that Sam actually was like born on Krypton. Mm -hmm. To see her now go through this shift of creating technology that actually protects aliens as opposed to exposing them is an interesting shift and also fits in kind of with the other things that she's doing with being deceptive versus being honest and open. Hmm, that's interesting. And then she also tells Lillian that she's using the money from it to fund other important research at Elcorp. And I also just want to know who was product testing that image inducer? <laughs> What are they? What what information do they collect about the people who buy them? Because mm -hmm. I could see that being something that falls into the wrong hands, kind of like when um, Jeremiah infiltrated the DEO to steal the list of registered aliens on behalf of Cadmus mm. in season two. True. That's a possibility. I find it unlikely that we won't see more to do with the image inducer mm -hmm. plot wise. So perhaps. And sort of speaking of things that might fall into the wrong hands of Lena's, uh, Lena's creations in the, um, promo for 402 Fallout. Like nuclear Fallout? Perhaps. Subtle Russia reference again. Well, also kryptonite. Yes. Well, because we saw kryptonite in the trailer. As we talked about in our, our science episode, how kryptonite is historically a sort of fear symbol of radiation and its effects. But going back to Lena and her various devices that might be used for harm instead of for good, as Katie McGrath mentioned at Comic-Con, in the promo for Fallout, we saw two things that Lena has used in the past. Both the device that they used to disperse lead in the atmosphere to get rid of the Daxamites, we see that as well as kryptonite being placed into it, mm -hmm. which are both Lena's property. And we also saw Kara, Lena, and Eve in Elcor seeming to sort of like run away from something. And so I'm presuming that Elcorp's going to be under attack and then have certain things stolen from them that are then used against Supergirl. 
That would be a good guess because I think there was also a brief shot in the promo of Kara clearly experiencing the effects of kryptonite poisoning. Yep. And we already know that episodes three and four were shot out of order ahead of episodes one and two because Melissa was on Broadway. So we already know that she will be less present in those episodes. So then it would make sense that there's something going to happen in episode two that will necessitate her being less a main focus of the story going into episodes three and four until they can solve whatever that problem is. Yes. Well, also possibly the purpose for the suit that we saw. And then the one last thing that we saw at the end of the episode that's going to lead us into things that happen in the future. Um, much like last year, they chose to end the episode on a forward moving note mm-hmm. by giving us hints about something mysterious that will happen later in the season. It was revealed to us that while Supergirl was busy rescuing the train in Kaznia that nearly went over a broken bridge, Russian Kara was underground punching a tunnel through the earth for some reason, which is not clear because I don't speak enough Russian to know what Mm -hmm. the guards were saying. They were talking in the background. So if there are any Russian speakers who would like to translate, that'd be awesome. Contact us at Supergirl's Attic. (laughs) Yes, please hit us up on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram and let us know what the heck they said in that scene. (laughs) But in general, it's just a mystery. Why was other Kara terraforming Earth, kind of like rain, but not? (laughs) Well, and it was also funny because it reminded – I said this to you earlier. It reminded me of the scene in season one where Kara is punching the cars, but Mm -hmm. instead this Kara is punching bedrock. (laughs) (laughs) She's just frustrated, you know. She's just working um, out her anger issues. R- Russian Kara doesn't have a support system that our car has, so she needs more things to punch. Her mother is a patriotic abstraction. She doesn't get hugs. <laughs> she needs to punch things. <laughs> well. And on that note, with terrible, <laughs> terrible jokes, uh, <laughs> we will leave you to ponder all of these details about the first episode of season four. And you are welcome to send us additional questions that we can answer on Tumblr. So again, we are at Supergirl's Attic on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram. And we will be back next week to talk about 402 Fallout. And in the meantime, if you're interested in understanding a little more about the current events that are influencing the story, we have also put together a short reading list of some news articles that will help explain different things that came up over the course of the first episode because we're nerds (laughs) (laughs) and we want you to be a nerd too the philosophy here at supergirls attic is you're gonna learn things and you're gonna like it (laughs) so that'll be on our tumblr so feel free to check us out and we're excited to see the next episode and to hear what you guys think thanks for listening